this morning, I'm excited. We're going to start a new series that we're going to be in for actually most of the summer. We're going to go through the book of Nehemiah. So if you're new with us, you know, one of the things that we do when it comes to teaching is we like to do a mixture of book studies where we just read through a book of the Bible, and that's the way we work through it, as well as a mix, we mix that with topical studies where we might look at a theme of the Bible. We might look at just things going on culturally and what does the Bible say about marriage or, or parenting or forgiveness. Um, and so we like, to, we like to have a mixture of both book, book studies as well as themes and topical studies. And so this summer we're going to spend some time in this Old Testament book uh, called Nehemiah. And, I mean, don't raise your hand, but how many of you guys have read Nehemiah? I mean, it's, it's uh, a book that often gets brought up in churches right before a building campaign. Because the, pr the premise of the book is really Nehemiah... Uh, goes and he he wants to rebuild the wall in Jerusalem and so a lot of times it's just tied into building campaigns um, but a lot of churches do it before the campaign and so we're doing it a little different in that we've campaigned and we're we're now waiting as the building is being built which by the way if you go out to the land um, you can see things are moving it's fun to go out there not yet on the video um, We'll get there. Uh, so Nehemiah, though, for, uh, for me, as I was talking to other state pastors, it's just like here we are in this unique summer, the last summer here in the school. Our building is being built. And um, it's not so much to go into Nehemiah to sort of say, uh, hey, let's try to convince people to give to the, to the building. Um, but, but the amazing thing about the book of Nehemiah and the story, and today is what I want to do is I really want to set the stage, kind of set uh, – the context around this book, because it's super important as we go through this to understand the backstory. But really, um, what you see in the book of Nehemiah is it's not just the rebuilding of something physical like the wall, it's the rebuilding of the people. At the same time, Nehemiah has a heart and God has a heart for the people because they've been through a lot. And they, there needs to be healing in the people. And so the wall's great, and it's awesome that they're rebuilding the wall and we'll we'll get to understand why that's important and why it's great but what's even more important is the rebuilding of the people and I you know as I think about our building the building's great and I am so excited uh, and I hope you are too and it's going to be fun to watch it come together it's going to be amazing to go in there but uh, and we've talked about this through the whole of this building project is at the end of the day it is about people and it's about being a place where people can be rebuilt by God, healed by God. And I thought as like the summer going into our building, our last summer, what if we looked at just ourselves and go, what maybe needs some rebuilding in me? Where's there things in me that need to change or things that need to be healed in me? Uh, and, and so this summer, I really look at it for our church as a, as a summer to prepare um, and but also for us personally to to look and just go what maybe needs to be rebuilt in me so let me give you just the backstory a little bit of the backstory and you've got to go all the way back to the Israelite people all the way to Abraham God says to Abraham you're going to be the father of a nation a chosen people that will be a light a gift for all nations 
and this chosen family becomes a, a people, becomes a, a nation, and they grow, and uh, eventually, because of a famine, Joseph, the story of Joseph, it brings the, Israelite, the family uh, of Israel um, to Egypt, and they continue to grow until a point where there, there comes a pharaoh in Egypt who doesn't know the story of Joseph, doesn't know the story of Israel, and looks at these people and go, well, that would be an awesome workforce. And also, they're getting so big, I don't want them to overtake me, and so he makes them slaves. And the people of Israel are now find themselves in a, in a foreign country as slaves under Pharaoh. And they cry out to God and they cry out to God. And God says, I will deliver my people. He raises up Moses and they exile, they, they exile out of Egypt. And God says, I have a promised land, a piece of property for you that you're going to thrive. And the people eventually make their way to this promised land. And they grow and they build. They build a temple and, um, you know, a place of worship. I mean, it is, like, we think about a church being built, and we're like, this is so cool, but the temple was actually the presence of God. It was, it was a sa- the most sacred space. It's still, for, for Jews, when, when you go to the Temple Mount, that's the most sacred space uh, location for, for Jewish people. Um, and they're, they're there, and yet they sin. They continue to sin over and over and over again. They can't get it right. God gives them chance after chance after chance. He sends prophets. He's like, you guys got to fix things. You got to stop worshiping like other idols. You got to stop breaking my commands, or there's going to be consequences. And it's not like God didn't give the people a lot of chances. And it's not like God didn't give the people leaders and prophets to stand up and say, stop. He did. But it eventually got so bad where God's like, I'm going to have to allow an exile. I'm going to have to allow you to to be overtaken by another people for you to see, like, sin is serious and there's consequences to your sin. And so he simultaneously says, you're going to be overtaken by by Babylon and a vast majority of the people are going to be taken from their homeland and brought to a foreign land almost like a reversal of, of the, the Egyptian exile, like being brought out. Now they're going back to another foreign land, and they're going to be slaves again. And there's a remnant that is left, a small group of people that are left in Jerusalem. But Babylonians come in, they, they steal people, they kill people, they, 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 they ransack the temple. Everything's destroyed. But simultaneously, as God says that this is going to happen, he also says, I will restore you and bring you back to Israel. Now, none of us can understand, I don't think we can get close to what this would be like, but it would be like Canada or something coming in. Let's be honest, it wouldn't be Canada. Um, But like literally some other country comes in and uh, overtakes us. Some of us are killed but we're taken into slavery, we're brought to another, another country. I mean, imagine living in a foreign land and just that longing for home. That, I mean, for hundreds of years, we're talking about the, the Jewish people finding themselves exiled, and they just have this longing for home and, and wanting God to bring them back. So this brings us now to Nehemiah. And I'm going to show you, um, it's, a, it's a little long, it's eight minutes, but uh, worth it the Bible Project's video on Ezra and Nehemiah, because originally Ezra and Nehemiah were one book, and then they were separated out. Um, But it it will help give some context 
to this story, to what's happening, and where we find Nehemiah. Nehemiah is, has been taken out of, of Israel. He is in exile, and he's gotten a pretty good position under the king of Babylon. Um, and so let's watch this video. It'll help continue to shape the book. And then we're going we're gonna to look at Nehemiah 1 and the beginnings of this story. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah. In most modern Bibles, these books are separate, but that division happened long after it was written. It was originally a unified work written by a single author. The story is set after the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem and its temple and took many of the people into exile. And this book picks up about 50 years later and tells the return of some Israelites to Jerusalem and then what happened when they rebuilt the city and their lives there. Specifically, the book focuses on three key leaders who led the rebuilding efforts. You have Zerubbabel, then Ezra, and then Nehemiah. And the book's design focuses on the efforts of each leader. Zerubbabel leads a large group of people back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Then about 60 years later, Ezra arrives in Jerusalem to teach the Torah and rebuild the community. And then he's followed by Nehemiah, who leads the rebuilding of Jerusalem's walls. And these three stories are designed to be parallel. Each begins with the king of Persia, prompted by God to send the leader to Jerusalem, and he offers resources and support. And then each leader encounters opposition in their efforts, which they then overcome, but in a way that leads to a strange anticlimax in each of the three parts. Let's back up and see how it fits together. So the story begins with a decree from Cyrus, the king of Persia, and he's moved by God to allow the exiles to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And the author says this fulfills a promise made by the prophet Jeremiah that the exiles would one day return to Jerusalem. Now, this fulfillment should trigger our hopes in the many other prophetic promises that exile was not the end of the story. We have hope for a future messianic king from the line of David. We have hope for a rebuilt temple where God's presence will dwell with his people. Hope for God's kingdom to come over all the nations and bring his blessing, just like he promised to Abraham. And so it's with all these hopes in mind that we read on into the story of Zerubbabel. His name means planted in Babylon. He represents the generation born in Babylonian captivity, and he leads a wave of Israelites returning to Jerusalem. After they settle there, they rebuild the altar for offering sacrifices, and later the temple itself. The foundation-laying ceremony, and then the temple's final dedication, these are key moments. The past stories of the tabernacle and temple's dedication should be in our minds. This is when the fiery cloud of God's presence is supposed to descend. He's dwelling with his people, and it doesn't happen. And so while some people are happy about this new temple, the elders who had seen the previous temple of Solomon, they cry out in grief. It is nothing like their glorious past or their hopes for the future. And it's right here that we get the first story of opposition, and it's very odd. So the grandchildren of the Israelites who were not taken into exile, they had been living in Jerusalem all along, they come to offer help with the temple rebuilding. And Zerubbabel refuses. He says, you have no part in our temple. And this, of course, generates a conflict, which Zerubbabel overcomes. But it's very strange, because the prophets had envisioned that the tribes of Israel would all come together, along with all of the nations, to participate in the worship of the God of Israel when the kingdom finally comes. So this is an anticlimactic moment, to say the least. 
In the next section, we zoom forward about 60 years and we're introduced to Ezra. He's a leader among the exiled Israelites in Babylon. And he's a Torah scholar and a teacher. And so he gets appointed by Artaxerxes, king of Persia, to lead another wave of people back to Jerusalem. And Ezra wants to bring about spiritual and social renewal among the people. Our hopes are high. And again, we come to another anticlimactic moment in the story. Ezra learns that many of the exiled Israelites that had come back, they had married non-exiles who had been living around Jerusalem. Some of them were non-Israelites, and almost certainly some of them were. Ezra then appeals to the commands of the Torah that Israel was supposed to be holy and separate from the ancient Canaanites. And he then says that the people living around Jerusalem are like the Canaanites. They're going to corrupt the exiles. So Ezra offers a prayer of repentance, and it's very heartfelt. But then he rallies all the leaders and enacts this divorce decree that says all these marriages should be annulled, the women and children sent away. And then the decree is only partially carried out. We're given a list of some of the men who divorced their wives. The story is very strange for a number of reasons. First of all, God never commanded Ezra to do any of this. It was the leaders of Jerusalem who led Ezra to make the decree. Second, the contemporary prophet Malachi, he did say that the exiles should care about purity, but he also said that God was opposed to divorce. And so the mixed results of the decree, this all fits into this pattern of a strange concluding anticlimax, which leads us to the next section about Nehemiah. He's an Israelite official serving in the Persian government, and when he hears about the ruined state of Jerusalem's walls, he prays and then gets permission from the Persian king Artaxerxes to go and rebuild the walls. The king even gives him an armed escort and all these resources. So after arriving in Jerusalem, he begins the building project, and he too faces opposition from the people who had already been living around Jerusalem. Once again, we face a tension in the story. The contemporary prophet Zechariah said that the new Jerusalem of God's kingdom would be a city without walls, that God's presence would surround it, that people from all nations would come and join the covenant people. But Nehemiah seems to operate with the opposite vision. He informs the people surrounding Jerusalem that they have no part in Jerusalem. And this, of course, provokes them to hostility. And so while Nehemiah carries out his vision for the city with integrity and courage. They have to build the city with armed guards to protect them. We keep wondering, could this whole conflict have been handled differently? And this all leads to the conclusion of the book in two movements, first positive and then negative. Ezra and Nehemiah combine forces to bring about a spiritual renewal among the people. They gather all the exiles together for a festival. They read and teach the Torah to all the people for seven days. And then they celebrate the ancient Feast of Tabernacles to remember God's faithfulness from the Exodus and the wilderness journeys. Then they offer a confession of their sins. They vow themselves to renew the covenant, follow all the commands of the Torah. And they finish with a great celebration over the temple, the walls of Jerusalem. And we're thinking this could be the turning point, but it's not. The book ends on a huge downer. Nehemiah tours around the city, and he finds that the people have not been fulfilling their covenant vows. So Zerubbabel's work is undone as he finds the temple being neglected and staffed by all these unqualified people. He then discovers that Ezra's work is being compromised. He finds everyone violating the Torah, people are working on the Sabbath, and even his own work on the walls is involved because people are setting up markets around the walls of Jerusalem and working on the Sabbath. So Nehemiah, he goes on a rampage. He's beating people up, he's pulling out their hair, and he's yelling, obey the commands of the Torah. 
And his final words are a prayer that God would remember him, that at least he tried, and the book ends. I mean, it's very strange. But we've been prepared for it, right? These anticlimactic moments have been woven into the book's design intentionally. And so it raises the question, what on earth does this book contribute to the storyline of the Bible? Well, remember, the book started by raising our hopes in the prophetic promises about the Messiah, the temple, the kingdom of God, and then none of it happens. So even though Israel is now back in the land, their spiritual state seems unchanged from before the exile. And while Ezra and Nehemiah, they do their best, but their political and social reforms among the people don't address the core issues of their heart. So what the book is pointing out is the same need highlighted by the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel. What God's people need is a holistic transformation of their hearts if they're ever going to love and obey their God. And so the book ends on a downer, yes, but it forces you to keep reading on into the wisdom and prophetic books to find out what is God going to do to fulfill his great covenant promises. But for now, that's the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. So that gives you more context to this book. And I think there at the end, and what I hope we get from ultimately this series, because there's great leadership lessons, and we're going to see that. We see the good decisions that Nehemiah makes, but then we also are going to see some of the bad ones. But at the end of the day, you can bring people back into the land. You can, you can rebuild things that were broken. But if you're not doing the heart work, in people, it doesn't change much. And that's what our church is called to do and be, is to be a part of the transforming heart work that God wants to do in you and what God wants to do in me and what he wants to do in our community. So as we build, awesome, fun, great. But we can bring people into a new building, but if we're not prepared to do the heart work and let God do the work in our heart, so that we can be a part of God doing the work in other people's hearts, then it's just a building. And you're going to run into all sorts of other problems and fighting that we see in this book. So there's awesome lessons that I hope really uh, shape us in this season of preparation. Uh, Max Dupree wrote a pretty famous leadership book called Leadership is an Art. And in it he says, The first responsibility of a leader is to define reality. The last is to say thank you. In between the two, the leader must become a servant and a debtor. That sums up the progress of an artful leader. I like this quote because what it's saying is a leader has to recognize what is the current reality. What's really happening? Not turning a blind eye to problems or conflict, but we need to define our reality. At the end, Dupree says it's vital that the leader says thank you. Why? Because you can't really do much without the help of others. You can do a little, but at the end of the day, for a movement to happen, truly, it needs to be a collective group of people. And for the leader to recognize the importance at the end of saying Thank you. So vision at the beginning and celebration at the end. But he says in between, truly, the heart of a leader is to be a servant. And this is like, I don't know that he's trying to be biblical, but it's biblical. If you look, the word leader is used far less 
uh, than servant. We are called to be a servant. Yes, there's leaders. We need leaders, but they are called to be servant leaders. And Nehemiah, we see, is a servant leader. And it's critical for us to learn and to teach people um, that to see reality um, is to simultaneously see God. If we're truly going to see things for how they are and we're going we're to peer into the problems and conflicts that we see, we've got to have eyes open to where is God in the midst of this conflict or where is God in the midst of this problem. Because this is what Nehemiah does, and it allows him to join with God in the restoring of the wall and the people. Let me read for you Nehemiah 1, 1 through 11. It says, The words of Nehemiah, son of Hekelah, in the month of Kislev in the twelfth year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province, are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commands, let your ear be attentive and your eye, eyes open to hear the prayer that your servant is praying before you day and night for the servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sin we Israelites, including myself and my, fam my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed your commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them up to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeem by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servant who delights in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. Three things I want to um, share with us when we look at problems in our lives or problems we see in the world, in our community, wherever we may find ourselves. One of the things we do, I think, to tackle problems often is we just, uh, we react quickly to the problem and the desire is to fix it as soon as possible. We don't like it, we, we want to eliminate the problem or the conflict in our life. And so often our first reaction is to respond. And often it's filled with emotion. Particularly if it's something you don't agree with, it's pressing against, you know, your core values or what you believe is true, uh, or you just, you just hate feeling the sort of the negativity around the problem or around the conflict, and you just, you want out of it. You want something to change. And often we react to that. And often we react quickly. And we try to come up with solutions. Or we just try to ignore it. Nehemiah shows us right away in the, in the beginning of this book um, how to respond in a godly way to problems. 
Nehemiah is, is, is in exile, and there's a report that comes from, from back home, and the people are in ruin, the city is in ruin. It's a big problem. And it's a problem that touches Nehemiah because it's, it's his people. And Nehemiah responds in, in, a pretty amazing, in a pretty amazing way. He weeps, fasts, and prays. That's his response. But first, um, you've got to hear and see the problem. You've got to, first of all, you've got to be aware of the problem. So, 70 years of captivity in Babylon, they're given the opportunity to return back to the promised land. Um, some scholars think that it was two or three million Jews that were deported from the land. Only 50,000 of that the two million decided to return to the promised land. That's 2%, pretty low. But they did return. And in the days of Ezra, we hear that they rebuilt the temple. Um, and then we get to Nehemiah, sometime after the book of Ezra. Um, and the walls of Jerusalem are still in rubble. And no one thinks that things can be rebuilt. No one, you know, there's, there's a this sort of feeling of dismay that we, we get in the report to Nehemiah that the people are just like broken and no one's doing anything about it. You know, and the walls were important to a city like back then. It's different than today, but that was your primary source of protection. And so the people don't feel, they don't feel protected, but they also see this problem that they look and they go, it's just too big. Like we either don't have the people, we don't have the resources, or they're just so disheartened from years of exile that no one's willing to stand up and, and do anything about it. But Nehemiah sees the problem, but in the midst of seeing or hearing the problem, he sees a big God. And that's, that's the first thing when it comes to your problems. We, you've, got to rec you've got to recognize that there's a bigger God that stands and, and exists bigger than your problems, whether they're big or small. And I think often when we think about problems in our life, we sort of, like God, we separate God outside of it. And yet the reality is, is God, God's like can enter right into the middle of it. And that's exactly why Nehemiah responds the way he does. He doesn't respond right away in action. He doesn't, you know, respond in anger or frustration or hate or sin. No, he, he, he in essence, is, is, is trying to enter into the presence of God by fasting, by weeping, by praying. And this is like a, a, a blueprint for how we as followers of Jesus should like initially respond to problems in our life. How many of you, myself included, the, like last week, think of one problem you had. 
I talked to one of our other pastors, and he kept track for this sermon how many problems he had every day. He averaged 22 problems every day, big and small. How and how did, how, like, what did you do in response to the problems that played out in your life this last week? How many of you just sat, just stopped, didn't do anything, cried about it, mourned, lamented about it, fasted about it, prayed about it? I'll be the first one in this place to admit I didn't do that with the problems that I faced this last week. This last week, I'll just say it was a mess for some stuff going on with the school, going on with the, the building. There's just going to be problems with all this stuff. Uh, one of them, uh, we have a lease with the school. The lease comes up at the end of this calendar year. And I was not a part of the original lease, but at, there's, there was an agreement in the lease with the church and the school that the church would install some equipment in this room, and uh, I felt like it's unneeded equipment, but the school's like, hey, to fulfill the lease, you know, we need this equipment to be installed. And I'm just, okay. Uh, and so I'm thinking, all right, well, we'll, we'll do it for, we'll, we'll look around, get some bids, do it for this number. Well, I have a meeting with the superintendent, and they come with a bid. And they, they show the bid, and it's like four times what I'm thinking the price is. And they had emailed this bid to me before the meeting I had with them, and I was fired up. Like, I went from, like, my pastoral role to over here to my previous sales role, and I'm like, we're going to rumble here because, I you know, I, we're not paying that. Not going to happen, and I'm going to go hard. And so I'm, like, preparing for this meeting, and I'm like, this is a problem. And uh, by the grace of God, I didn't pray about it. Uh, I didn't fast about it. I'm just going to be honest. I didn't weep about it. I was just mad about it. But I was sitting there. I had some time before this, this Zoom meeting, and um, just something sort of came over me, God, and was like, what is, like, how is your response in anger? Like, how is that going to help you, the church, in your relationship with the school? And I said, well, okay, God, fine. I won't be mad, but I want it to be fair. And I think God's like, yeah, cool. I want it to be fair, too. So I decided, all right, instead of going in hot, I'm not going to. I'm just going to listen. And so here they are, and they're sharing, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And I was like, okay. And I said, I just want you guys to know something. Um, our church, we value our relationship with you guys. And what we've been able to do to serve children, students, our community because of our relationship with you guys is so vital to our mission. And even though we're going to be leaving in a year, I want you to know that we, we hope that we can still have that relationship and uh it felt like losing i'll just say it it felt like losing and i said okay we'll we'll, we'll figure out i'm gonna get another bid i'm gonna talk to the overseers and we'll figure out something and at the end the superintendent goes you know covid has just been such a trying year and the community ed 
uh, just has not been doing well financially, and this is just going to help us out in a big way. And I, when he said that, I thought, could God be just taking this complete mess? Because God's provided for us financially in a really powerful way this last year. And we were going to have to pay for this regardless because we're contractually obligated to pay it. But the school's struggling. And, like, did God have the foresight to know that when our lease ended, um, there would be a, pan a worldwide pandemic and the school might find themselves struggling? And yet we are doing relatively well financially and we have this contractual obligated expense we have to pay. And yet uh, because another pastor agreed to do something that I wouldn't have done, uh, it's money that can ultimately bless and help the school. Why would I underestimate God and his ability to just take problems and ultimately do something good? Because here's the question. Is it worth dying on the hill and just, like, I could fight it. Just fight it. So we would have some more money. Like, is that worth it? Like, what sort of testimony is, the, is that? And believe me, I wanted to fight it. And there's still, I think, some push and pull so that it gets to a place where we feel like it's fair. But to burn the bridge, it's just like in the long term, is it worth it? I, I don't think so. And biting your tongue isn't always fun. But when we respond initially, particularly like emotionally, we often miss out on seeing God. Because what if God, in his, in his ultimate wisdom and foresight, just saw this as a way for us to help the school? Isn't that what we want to do? You know, and if, if, if we're going to burn bridges and destroy relationships that we have, it's very hard to reconstruct those. Like, is it worth it just to, like, be right or save a little bit of money? And sometimes the answer, I think, is no. So for us, in the midst of our problems, you've got to look for God in the midst of it and see the crazy cool stuff he can piece together and the crazy cool things God can do through our problems. But the way you get there is your problems, you don't ignore them. You don't pretend like they're not there and you don't jump in and just try to fix it or respond to it, the Bible's like, just take a step back for a moment and seek God. And I'm like, what if we did that together? Like, what if that was how we responded to problems? Like, whether they're big or small, and whether it's a day of stepping back, or it's a second, five seconds, where something happens, and it's at work or wherever, and it's a problem, and instead of just responding, you just take a second and go, God, what do I do here? Like, God, I want, you know, where are you in this? But maybe for the bigger problems, we've got to step back for a day or a week, and we've got to weep about it. We've got to lament about it. Maybe we got to pray. Maybe we, I mean, we certainly have to pray about it, and, but maybe we've got to fast about it. Like, maybe we've got to do what it takes to get to God. Whatever it takes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just, I'm going to get to God so I can see God in the midst of this challenge and this problem. And the amazing thing is God's like, he's there and he's ready to do, like, good, renewing work in the midst of our problems if we're willing to, like, do what it, do what it takes to get, like, our, like, open our eyes to see him in it. And that's what Nehemiah does. 
He hears and he sees the problem. He steps back. He doesn't run right to the king right away. He doesn't just get on a horse and go to Jerusalem. He, he, like, he, he presses in to find God in the midst of it. What do I do? God, give me wisdom. Forgive me for my sin and my people's sin. So, what if we looked at, at our problems, our conflicts, our struggles differently, and we looked for God in the midst of it, and we were willing to do the things through prayer, through lament, through fasting, to see God and his presence in our problems so we can see his power transform our problems and use ultimately hard difficult things for god to do good things transforming things things that only god can do that's the cool thing is it's often in the most difficult things in your life the deepest holes in your life that you see god in his in his vastness in his power But are we willing to, to step back and pursue him? Like that's our natural response. It's not, it's, we just, we respond to our problems by praying about it. That's the first thing we do. Just the first thing we do with all of our problems is we go to God. That's our first lesson. It's the first thing we learn from Nehemiah. Let's pray. Stand with me together. Lord Jesus, thank you that, uh, you're good. And Lord, we all have problems. Every day we have problems. And uh, I think how we respond to our challenge, the challenges in our life, the problems in our life, uh, means everything. And uh, God, I just pray as we journey through this book together that your wisdom would just be poured into our minds and our hearts that we would learn from the successes and the failures of your people from the past. And I pray, God, that we would put into practice the things that we see, God, you desire. And I, I just, I take a moment now, Lord, and all of us in this room, all of us watching online, we've got problems. Some big, some small. And I just, let's take, let's just take a moment right now. And just tell God, go to God with whatever problem you see could be in your life could be in your family's life could be in your kids life could be just a, a, a problem you see in the world in our towns schools just go to God with it right now he's not afraid of them he can handle all of them and he loves us so much he's willing to just listen and receive it bring it to his feet And God, you're the God who does stuff, cool stuff. And all the things we bring to you, Lord, you can handle. And I just pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes, our hearts, to know how do we move forward, seeking your presence in the midst of the problems we're facing in life. And to take the right steps. So help us to hear your voice, to see the path you're leading us on, and the wisdom to do what's right. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.